the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are the Redskins coming back? You remember the Redskins? The team that became the Washington football team for a couple of years before it became the Commanders because the name Redskins was considered racist and offensive to Native Americans? Well, as usual, the liberals apparently overestimated how offended the people that they were trying to pander to actually were. The Washington football team has a new owner as of a couple of months ago, and a group called the Native American Guardian Association, made up of, you know, Native Americans, started a petition to get the name changed back to Redskins. We told you about that a month or so ago. The group said, quote, The name Redskins carries deep cultural, historical, and emotional significance, honoring the bravery, resilience, and warrior spirit associated with Native American culture. It was never intended as a derogatory or offensive term, but as a symbol of respect and admiration. Changing the name abruptly disregards the positive legacy that the Redskins' name built over the years and disorients the passionate fans who have invested their emotions, time, and unwavering support in the team, unquote. NAGA has tried to get the commanders to meet with them, but no luck. One executive referred to them as a fake group. And when white liberals decide to defend the offended, they'll decide how much the supposed offended or offended, not the offended. They now have 128,000 signatures on that petition. Sports Illustrated surveyed Native Americans about nicknames and logos that white liberals insisted were offensive to them several years ago, and it turned out that Native Americans were overwhelmingly in favor of Indian nicknames and logos. Of course, that meant nothing to the liberal busybodies. Uh, A U.S. Marine named Billy Diekman, who's a member of NAGA, N-A-G-A, was on Fox recently, and he said 90% of American Indians are okay with the name Redskins. The numbers from Sports Illustrated were close to that, by the way. How do you like the chances of the liberals paying any attention to any of this? Meanwhile, the NFL season starts a week from tomorrow, and the Detroit Lions will be playing the Kansas City Chiefs. Oh, no! Anyway, when we come back, colleges are back in session, and there's trouble brewing down in Morgantown. It could be a sign of trouble to come for colleges everywhere, including maybe the one where your kid or grandkid goes. And in our second half hour, how a football coach has liberals in Washington all fired up. He's actually a former coach, but he's now a U.S. senator, and you should be rooting for him. Stick around. Well, even though uh, Labor Day isn't until next week, uh, most colleges are back in session right now, but some colleges aren't because they went out of business not too long ago, and that could be a trend. Paul Ducunois is president of the uh, Palm Beach Freedom Institute. He has some bad news about a college a few miles down the road in Morgantown. He joins us now. Paul, thanks for coming on the show again. Good to have you. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. 
So, uh, what's happening at West Virginia? You, WVU. WVU is making extreme cuts or has proposed extreme cuts in its budget. They're seeking to save $75 million to cover a $45 million deficit. Their board of governors will have a final meeting on the cuts September 15th. They are taking out 32 majors and programs of studies and 169 faculty members. It's an unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented cut for an institution of that size and stature. So who made the decision to do that? The decision was made by the administration in what they described as a holistic process that only included deans and program heads. They don't appear to have consulted the faculty, the students, employers who hire WVU graduates, or anybody else who might have a dog in that hunt. They just made these decisions on their own, guided by a consulting firm that consults with universities and uh, proposed the cuts to their board, which will decide, again, September 15th on who goes and who stays. Yeah, and I see in the piece that you wrote um, that they get 45 minutes on September 15th to uh, try to change their mind? Yeah. That uh, sounds final to, to me. Oh, yeah, pretty final. If you object to being fired or having your program dissolved, you'll have 45 minutes to make your case in the appeals process before the Board of Governors makes its final decisions. Um, West Virginia is a good school. Uh, if this is happening there, how can it not be happening at a lot of other good schools? It certainly is happening in a lot of good schools. Uh, we have had the disappearance of 96 colleges and universities since 2016. That's a there lot. Are a great many other institutions, including my own former institution, uh, the American University of Beirut, have had tremendous budget problems and are barely surviving. Um, they, they have really tremendous challenges facing the future. Well, let me ask you something uh, about something that I've really, I don't think I've ever really understood completely, uh, and that would be endowments. What about, doesn't West Virginia have an endowment of millions of dollars? Um, I, I know that all every other school, I think, does. And if so, um, why not tap into that? Most schools do have endowments. However, most endowments are governed by very strict rules about usage. And typically, they would be forbidden to use endowments to bail out a university's expenses. <laughs> it's a very valid question to ask because you know, they, they could seek to build endowments that don't have those restrictions, but this is something they've failed to do. And the bigger problem, John, is that they have high bloated administrative costs that they're also uninterested in cutting. West Virginia University's president, E. Gordon G., is paid $800,000 a year. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no sign that he is taking any pay cut. That'll pay despite for having London's University into disaster. That would pay for some teachers. Yeah, in fact, in my article, I mentioned that they're, they're dissolving the World Languages Department and firing about 24 professors who teach languages, including some critical languages that feed graduates into our national security jobs in Washington, which isn't very far away. Uh, Gordon G.'s salary would pay for about half of those salaries if he were to work without compensation or, or be fired. Well, to get uh, get back to the endowments, if if it's not meant to prevent, and you just mentioned ninety six colleges went out of business, I'd be interested to know how many of those had really large endowments and they went out of business anyway. Most of those were very smaller, smaller institutions with rather small endowments. 
Uh, the problem is, before, the disappearance of universities and colleges was largely confined to that category. It was small liberal arts colleges you've never mm-hmm. heard of, very minor state universities that were absorbed by other institutions. With West Virginia, for the first time, we're seeing this happen to what we call a research one institution. That's the highest classification of higher education institutions in America. Right? It's a top 250 university. It has 30,000 students. This is the first time we're seeing a major institution have to contract in this way. And this is the largest contraction in American history when it comes to higher education. The higher, this is the, the highest contraction, the highest number of schools disappearing in, in peacetime? Yeah, yeah we, we have never had, or in wartime, we've never had this happen before. Wow. Um, and so how much of the cuts at all, if, are, are, are you saying that none of these cuts will be made in administration? All faculty? Yeah, there appear to be no recommendations that administrators should lose their jobs. Uh, West Virginia University, as I said, has a president who makes $800,000 a year. Uh, He is there until 2025 when he retires, so he is not invested in any long-term, personally invested in any long-term growth. It also has seven vice presidents, each of whom make more than $200,000 a year. These salaries are public. You can look them up on West Virginia state government websites that list government employee salaries. Uh, so there seems to be very, very little of that. And indeed, this is, this is true. I mean, it, it seems like a widespread tale. Your average university president is 60 years old in America. It's usually the final job of someone's career. Mm-hmm. They have almost no interest in building their own reputation for a future assignment. They simply want to get as much as they can before they leave for, for something else, in retirement, and who cares what happens to the institution. And uh, I guess one school's president is another school's chancellor, like Pitt has a chancellor. Same job? Pretty much, yeah. And um, how, West Virginia, how, how much of um, what they are dealing with now could be a result of what seems to be, uh, seems to have happened, at least I've, I've read a lot about it, uh, The uh, going with diversity and and, and when you talk about administration, which you just said, no cuts there, the, the DEI people and all the all the people who were hired to do that, which do very few uh, students any good at all, um, how much of what's happening with West Virginia and what has happened and might happen to schools in the future will be uh, a result of that, of um, overloading on those people? It's a major expense. Administrations and universities are now getting toward two-thirds of the budget in terms of expense. I remember about 20 years ago, people were alarmed when it was hitting 50%. But now it's crossing a threshold to two-thirds. At Stanford University, there's one administrator for every undergraduate at Stanford. That, that, that's, how, that's how large these bureaucracies are One administrator are for every student. Yeah, that this is a, a very frequently cited statistic. And, of course, the diversity bureaucracies that you mentioned are a huge part of this. Harvard University, for example, employs more than 50 Title IX coordinators. Each one is paid an average of $91,000 a year. So that that will start to eat your budgets after a while. I'm not sure at West Virginia exactly how large their diversity bureaucracy is, but one of those seven vice presidents is a vice president for diversity and whatever, and she makes well over $200,000 a year, and she's going to stay in her job and continue doing nothing of any importance 
in fact, a, a, you're creating counter benefits for the students of, of, of who remain there. And we do see this happening. I think the only places where you see it shrinking are states like Florida, where we're based with our Freedom Institute, where we're now actively defunding diversity education and equity and inclusion bureaucracies and eliminating these positions. Wow. We're, we're talking to uh, Paul Ducunois. He's the president of uh, Palm Beach Freedom Institute. Um, and uh, I, I this, this is just amazing to me. Does... Um, does well, how much has enrollment declined? You say it's the largest contraction. Uh, not how much, but who, uh, men or women, not showing up? Because I know there are more women in colleges now, much more, I think, so than men. Uh, is it the men who started not showing up, not wanting to go to college? It is across the board. Uh, it's, it's everybody. Enrollments are down 15% nationally. In colleges and, and, and universities, uh, 40, only 45% of Americans now believe that a college education is essential for success in our society. In 1980, that figure was 95%, so almost unanimous. Wow, 45% uh, as opposed to 95%. Yeah, and 56% believe it's not worth the money. If you want to corroborate that statistic with the 45%. Yeah. Uh, that that, w- that would means more than half of Americans no longer believe in college as a stepstone to success or a necessary stepstone to success. And it does play out that men are going at lower rates than women. About 60% of undergraduate students are now female. That used to be a good uh, thing uh, for if you were a guy. I, I remember when I was in college, well, I, I went to Kent State. Certain point of view. Yeah, I went to Kent State a million years ago, and everybody knew there were more women there than men. Which made it different, and uh, we used to they used to the guys from Penn State used to, the joke was you had to wait a month to get a date with an ugly girl up there because it was <laughs> because you know the odds were so much against you they the, the supply and demand came into play there, but now it's everywhere so it's what's the what's the breakdown again forty four percent is are men. Well, I think it's, it's, among undergraduate populations, 60% female, 40% male. Now, here's the thing. We've heard a lot in the last few months about college loans and these people who uh, are expecting to get their college loans paid off by me and you. Um, uh, How will it take the colleges – what will it take for the colleges to figure out that – Maybe we're charging too much money, and uh, the return on investment ain't that good. Well, honestly, I think as long as the federal government subsidizes those loans, the colleges will keep increasing their tuition. We're, we're stuck in this vicious circle. The government increases how much you can borrow. The colleges see that and proportionally increase their tuitions to match that because they believe their product is strong. I think it's going to take a lot of hard lessons. And we do have some college presidents going into the media. Uh, Christopher Eisgruber from Princeton, for example, went in the Washington Post a couple of months ago and made a strong case for the value of the college degree. They, to an extent, believe their own propaganda. But as more and more universities fail, as more suffer these terrible budget crises, as more professors find themselves unemployed, despite the nominal protections of tenure, I think you're going to see a lot more systemic crisis happening in this system. I, I don't believe personally, uh, speaking as a former 
history professor myself, that it's sustainable long-term. I, I don't expect that we'll have the same system of higher education in 30 years that we do now. Well, if you think about it, the adults in the room, you would think maybe an 18-year-old kid coming out of high school doesn't grasp the concept of going into $250,000 worth of debt when you're 22 years old. But you would think that the parents would have figured out a while ago, and that maybe they have, maybe this is the sign that they have, they're finally figuring out, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not, I don't want my son or daughter to be $250,000 in debt when he's, he or she are 22 years old. Because I don't, I see too many of them working at uh, Starbucks when they get out. Yeah, I think that's true. And again, in that statistic I cited, fifty-six percent who don't believe college is worth the money. That includes forty-two percent of people who actually have four-year degrees, mm-hmm. who aren't getting the types of employment opportunities they were promised, who are seeing either fierce competition or job markets that just do not sustain high salaries for college graduates. And yeah, there is a, an increasing amount of skepticism toward the price. And what people are looking at uh, are alternatives. They're looking at ways to either get those large tuition bills covered uh, or ways to opt out of the system altogether. Like the number of Americans who are now sending their children out of the country to foreign institutions with, with much lower tuition is rising. Okay, the number of people who are buying into state programs. We have an excellent one in Florida called Florida Prepaid. You pay today's rate for a four-year education at one of our state institutions, and that way, when the child becomes eighteen, when he's ready to go to college, you get whatever the tuition is at that cost. Well, what about uh, uh, we're talking to Paul Ducanois, who's uh, um, he's he's a um, he's with the uh, what is it? I'm sorry, I forgot your name. There, there, uh, the organization. I'm the Palm Beach Freedom Sorry. Institute. Yeah, I it's have uh, org for your listeners. Okay. Where we have a membership program, please join us. Okay, Palm Beach Freedom Institute. Um, I have a couple minutes left. When I went to college a million years ago, I wanted to be a TV radio sportscaster, which I ended up being, and here I am still on the radio today, eight million years later. Um, but I can remember at the time thinking, why am I taking geology? which I had to take. Um, I ended up leaving before I got my degree because I still needed nine hours of biology. Do colleges and universities maybe have to start thinking about doing business differently? And, and oh, not make, and not, yeah. It seems to me that too much of that is just a way to make a kid stick around longer and pay more by making, making them take courses they're never going to need. There is a good argument, John, for a general education requirement if you want to have a sort of well-rounded individual. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. And what we're seeing is the market reacting to that in very interesting ways. So major companies, including Google, Bank of America, uh, Acerent, all of these different corporations that had always required college degrees no longer do. So do a lot of state governments for state government administrative positions positions that used to require a bachelor's degree mm-hmm. no longer require college. So there are a lot of opportunities for people like yourself who didn't finish or didn't go at all, uh, who can go in through these sort of apprenticeship models of education, which, which we all, which we actually had traditionally before we started requiring credentials in the 1960s, educational credentials, the way to work in banking or insurance or in a huge, huge variety of jobs 
in the American economy was simply by a kind of apprenticeship or vocational program. Oh, hey, Paul, I'm, I'm out of time. I appreciate it. I guess real quick, I, I just think that it's a, it's a, might have to take a school like West Virginia going out of business to get people's attention real quick. Yeah, uh, they're close to doing it now, but I think we're going to see more and more schools of that size and caliber suffering or going down altogether hey, as a result of these problems. Hey, Paul, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Good to be with you, John. Thanks. Okay, that's Paul Duconois of the Palm Beach Freedom Institute. I'll be right back. Well, the people of Alabama elected a retired football coach to the U.S. Uh, Senate not too long ago. That would be Tommy Tuberville, and that appears to have been a pretty good thing. He's uh, standing up to Joe Biden and the Democrats who are trying to ruin the military. Elaine Donnelly is the founder and president of the Center for Military Readiness, and she joins us now. Elaine, good to have you on again. Thanks for, for joining us. Yes. Hi. Good to talk to you. So uh, Tommy Tuberville has a lot of people in Washington and in the military upset. Why? Well, <laughs> they're upset with him, but they really should be upset with the Secretary of Defense. Uh, the problem is the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, in October 2022, came out with a memo saying that even though there's a statute, well, he didn't mention the statute, that uh, similar to the Hyde Amendment uh, that says federal funding shall not be used for abortions and that the statute relates specifically to the Department of Defense, he decided that, well, in view of the Dobbs decision, there are some states that will offer abortions and some that will not. So if military women are in a state that does not offer abortions, the Department of Defense would offer time off and transportation expenses so that that service member could go and have an abortion in some other location. Now, this really set off an awful lot of uh, dissension in Congress, and Senator Tuberville stood up and said, well, this is not going to stand. And there was not a whole lot that a single senator can do, but we do have checks and balances. So a senator, it says advice and consent when it comes to confirming nominations for federal offices, including the uh, military officers at high rank. And so Senator Tuberville told the Department of Defense, well, we're not going to confirm any of your nominees unless you rescind this amendment and stop this policy. And he's been standing firm. Now, it's not very often that you see a member of Congress, or in this case the Senate, take a position and stand firm and withstand all the pressures to do otherwise. Uh, there are a lot of uh, nominations that are on hold right now, but actually the Senate can vote on them individually. All the senator is trying to do is say you can't vote on them all at once, uh, a big block of them all at once. So, he, yes, he's causing a lot of people to be upset that some of the nominees have not gotten through. But then uh, he has the right, the full constitutional right, to do what he is doing. And I've noticed that the Department, or excuse me, the Democrats don't want to change the rule that one senator can put a hold on all nominations, or in this case, the procedure for nominations, because they want to do the same thing. They have done the same thing in the past. So this is what Senator Tuberville has decided to do. He has a lot of support in doing this. You hear mostly about criticism, but he also has across the board and the conservative movement, certainly pro-life movement, um, just overwhelming support for what he is doing. The impasse can be resolved, and it should, if the Secretary of Defense 
decides to comply with the law instead of taking it upon himself to make policy uh, in a way that is objectionable to the United States Congress and the American people. So, so why is this so important to the Secretary of Defense? Well, because he is an ideologue, because he represents this administration, which is uh, very woke, very ideologically based, very far left. Uh, Wokeism is really not that hard to define. It means taking progressive policies to extremes and (coughs) imposing them with coercion, even if it hurts the the, uh, institution. So what we have here is a policy that is not helpful to the military. Readiness doesn't depend on women getting abortions um, by going to another state. That is not a high-priority thing. And there's some ironies here, too. If a person's family member dies and they want some time off, some uh, bereavement time, uh, they have to do that on their own time. It's charged against them, and they, they have to pay their own expenses. And yet people who want time off to go and have an abortion, not to worry. Uh, The DOD is stepping up to make that possible with the use of tax dollars, which they are really not authorized to use. So this is a very interesting debate, and uh, we hope that Senator Toberville will stand firm. Uh, But the Secretary of Defense, he has the answer to the problem, and he ought to step up and do the right thing and... um, I think that that would certainly benefit the military and everybody concerned. The uh, there's a piece at the Federalist today by uh, a guy named Tom Jones, and he says this is about a lot more than abortion. He says that uh, Tuberville is freezing a bunch of woke nominees, and he has a a, a group of examples there. Are, yes. are there are there other Republicans doing enough to prevent the wokeness? Uh, you you say that Tuberville is standing. But he's, mm-hmm. he's, is he standing alone in some, in some ways? I don't know if anyone else, and it's not necessary for another senator to put a, a hold on the same as he is. It only takes one. Uh, and that is the Senate rule, and it's been used that way in the past. Uh, but these other nominees also deserve some closer scrutiny. I would add to the list in the Federalist, the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the nominee, General Charles Q. Uh, Brown. Uh, General Brown is a, a staunch advocate of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Uh, he is all about these kinds of things. Um, he was questioned at his confirmation hearing about a, a young woman who, in boot camp, uh, was forced to share her showers and private facilities with biological men. And it was uh, Senator Rounds who asked him about this, and all all the uh, general said was, well, we'll look at it. But what he really meant to say was, we're not going to do anything about it, because that situation, young women being exposed to biological men in private areas, that is a matter of, de- of official Department of Defense policy. And, of course, General uh, Brown and other nominees that are uh, before the Senate, uh, they support that policy as well. Now, elections have consequences, okay? This president came in, and he overturned the the reasonable policy that uh, President Trump had put in place, having to do with gender dysphoria. It is not a ban on transgenders in the military across the board. Um, That uh, ban, that policy of Trump's with regard to gender dysphoria, uh, was on its way to the Supreme Court and probably would have been upheld as constitutional. But along comes... President Biden, within days, perhaps on the same day, 
he signs executive orders and turns everything around. And the Department of Defense regulations are very specific. They say that persons will use the private facilities that match their gender identity, not necessarily their biological sex, which is, of course, determined at birth and cannot be changed, even if somebody decides they want to be someone else or their gender identity is something else, but they don't really change their biological sex. But if the Department of Defense bureaucracy says, okay, we're going to change your designation, designation, your marker, instead of being marked as a man, we'll mark you as a woman, therefore you get to use the women's private facilities. That is official Department of Defense policy. And and it's stated unambiguously and more than once in these regulations. So um, the the Senate and the the full House of Congress needs to look at every opportunity to examine these policies, to get more information. We heard for the first time on the record about a young woman exposed to this kind of an environment, which is very unfair to her. But I suspect there's many other cases that we have not heard about. And why have we not heard about them? Because the regulations say there shall be no discussion of problems with the transgender policy unless there is permission from the very highest levels of the Pentagon. Well, of course, nobody gets permission. Nobody even asks for permission. But Congress has the right and the duty, the responsibility to make policy for the military. That's the power of the Constitution. And I think a lot of these issues, they've been festering for a long time, and they're coming down to the point where Congress is saying, enough, we're going to do something. And that's what I think we're going to see with the upcoming defense bill. Would World War III fix this? The reason I ask that, you know, if we had a a major war broke out next week and and the the military actually had to focus only on the stuff that the military is supposed to do, which is kill people and blow things up, would would do you think, based on, you know, your your work in this uh, area, would this might might this cure some of this? Where the generals well, would just not have enough time to waste I, on stupidity like this? I don't know. Wars sometimes can be won or lost in the first several hours. You never know. Yeah. But I do know this. Um, all of the time and effort and resources and money that are being devoted to uh, all, all sorts of woke initiatives, diversity, equity, inclusion uh, programs, um, anti-extremism programs, which turned up very little evidence of extremism in the military. Uh, The kinds of things, these transgender policies, um, things that put meritocracy secondary to DEI, all of these programs, they are very time-consuming. They are very demoralizing. uh, Critical race theory alone uh, pits people, racial groups, against each other. Uh, convincing one group that they are oppressors and the yeah, other group that yeah. they are being oppressed by the oppressors, and then you're supposed to go out and fight a war together, uh, shoulder to shoulder. I mean, it it doesn't make any sense. So I think we're reaching a critical mass. A lot of people are saying enough. Um, the good news is that the current uh, draft versions of the National Defense Authorization Acts for uh, 2024 the House has passed their version. Senate has theirs. It's going to go to a conference committee, and the conference committee will iron out any differences. And there's a lot of really good items in the House bill, especially 
and there's a few in the Senate as well, even though uh, Republicans do not have control in the Senate. So depending on what happens, what comes out of the negotiations, uh, we may see a, a good, solid start in solving some of these problems and undoing some of the damage that's been done by excessive wokeism in the military. What's amazing to me, uh, and we're talking to Elaine Donnelly, she is the president uh, and founder and president of the Center Center for Military Readiness. Uh, I'm looking at this list that uh, Tom Jones put up at the Federalist. Uh, two of the people that uh, the nominees that uh, Tuberville is uh, Tuberville, I'm sorry, is blocking. Uh, two of them are women. One of them is Rear Admiral Shoshana uh, Chatfield. She's nominated for promotion to Vice Admiral and assignment at as U.S. military representative to the NATO Military Committee. She complained that since 80% of Congress is men, most of the issues that become laws are only important to men. This kind is of the a kind ridiculous of, attitude, isn't it? <laughs> hoop. But it is typical of feminist ideology, woke ideology, and you see how divisive that kind of attitude is. But it's very possible that she was named uh, the nominee for that position and promotion because she has those attitudes. Uh, it, all of this started, well, it started many years ago, but especially in the Obama administration. Uh, there was a pause during Trump's administration, but it's continuing uh, and roaring ahead now under uh, President Joe Biden. And it's going to get a, a lot worse unless the voters decide to look out for the military, elect the kind of lawmakers who are going to put priorities in order. Um, people like Senator Tuberville, who draw a line and stick to it. Uh, these issues are really important. Remember, it's the only military we have. Mm -hmm. So if you have policies that mess up the schools temporarily or tax policy or anything else, even the border, you can fix that. You can repair the damage. But with the military, it's the only one you have, and national security depends on it. Um, what I've never been in the military, but what happened to just, that's an order, shut up and do it? In other words... Uh, if a guy decides he's going to dress up like a woman and he wants to he wants to go in the women's locker room and the and the women's shower, where's the uh, the officer in command who just says no, you're not doing that. Shut up. I'm a, I'm a, a general and you're a private, and that's the way it works in the military. When did that stop? Well, when, did when stop the policy doing that? changed, the policy the policy remains the same, and people do have to salute and make it happen. And those who don't agree with the very liberal woke policy, they are the ones that, in many cases, decide to leave or they don't join the military in the first Good. place. So, no, no, I'm talking about the people who object to those uh, policies. Oh, okay. Okay, but the policy is made by civilians. We have civilian control of the military. Right. Now, that is a strength in our armed mm -hmm. forces. It is also a weakness. Because if you have the wrong civilian leaders, in this case, the, the, the Biden administration, a Congress that, at least in the Senate side, is controlled by people who, who buy into this ideology, then people in the military really have no recourse except to leave. They, they don't get to complain. It's not part of what they do. And there are good reasons for that. But in this case, it's a problem but that's why Congress has to step in. The Constitution assigns responsibility to Congress, not the courts, but to Congress. So if uh, we saw a Supreme Court decision recently that banned racial discrimination 
at uh, uh, well in in civilian schools, Harvard uh, and University action, of North yeah. Carolina. Yeah. Okay, it did not apply to the military service academies because that issue was not before the court. Very simple concept. It was in a footnote. Now, some people have said, well, why doesn't that principle apply to the service academies? Well, it's up to Congress to resolve that issue, and we're hoping that they will. There are a couple of um, measures before the Congress right now, both the House and Senate uh, versions of the defense bill, and it calls for an end to racial discrimination at the military service academies and the ROTC programs. Now, you would think that that wouldn't even be controversial, but here's the problem. This administration and the Department of Defense, they want to continue discriminating, and that's because they have these diversity, equity, inclusion quotas. Okay, the quotas distort everything. And if you don't get a certain number of people to reach a certain demographic percentage, then you adjust standards um, in order to make it happen. That means deliberate discrimination against people who are better qualified. Now, that is not part of military tradition. In fact, it was President Harry Truman, who many decades ago said, we will not have racial segregation in our military. He was ahead of his time in doing that. Mm -hmm. It's a proud tradition. But in recent years, uh, I would say since 2011, these diversity mandates, these quotas, uh, demographic quotas, sometimes they have different names. Uh, sometimes they call them goals or, um, uh, well, just demographics. It's, it's all based on percentages. Uh, these kinds of interferences and in decisions on who gets hired, who gets promoted, that is very demoralizing and it's not helpful to our military. We always need to go for the best, the very best, and not compromise due to political pressures. Elaine, I'm, I'm out of time. Uh, keep up the good work. I'm glad there's somebody out there keeping an eye on this, and we'll keep having you on to talk about it. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. People should call uh, Senator Tuberville's office. Just make a quick call and say thanks for your stand, and I think you would appreciate that. Thank you very much. Elaine Donnelly, founder and president of the Center for Military Readiness. I'll be right back. Uh-oh, Mitch McConnell did it again. He had a uh, media gathering uh, in Covington, Kentucky. Somebody asked him about running, if he was going to run for re-election. The fact that he would even be considering it is stunning, that he's 81 years old. You've been there long enough, Mitch. Go home. Thanks. Get out. But he was asked that question, and he completely froze up for the second time in about a month. He was not able to continue. One of his aides came up and whispered something in his ear, tried to get him to understand the question, and they had to lead him away. Now, Republicans should come out like in the next half hour and say, Mitch, you got to go. Thanks for coming, and you got to go. We got to replace you. Um I'm not sure if the Kentucky has a Republican or a Democrat governor because that would make a that would could change it. But anyway, he's got to go. How about this for a deal? The Republicans and the Democrats get together and they get Mitch McConnell and Diane Feinstein and they say, "Mitch, Diane, here's the deal. Tomorrow after lunch, you're gone. Okay? Have a nice lunch. We'll pat you on the head. Get out." 
Because if they're not smart enough or decent enough or cognizant enough to know that the party's over, then somebody has to tell them and somebody has to kick them out. That's sad, but it shouldn't come to that. You should be smart enough to make the move on your own and and unselfish enough and not in love with yourself so much that you would actually say, okay, I think I've been here long enough. Goodbye. And that's what I'll say now because I've been here long enough. Goodbye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.